Well, good morning again. Um, let me just start this morning by telling you that uh, I've been by myself this weekend. My family's out of town. They left Friday morning. And I'm not hungry at all. No, 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 quite the opposite. Um, on the way home Friday, I picked up some steak at the store. But this really brought to mind how, oh, what should I say, how selfish I am when I'm by myself. When my world shrinks down to just me, I lose my focus on everybody else. I mean, I missed my wife, I missed my kids. By the grace of God, hopefully they'll be home this afternoon. But you know what? I started thinking, what could I do? What, what could I not do? was probably even a better question. I, I thought, I'm not even going to open my door Saturday. I'm just going to stay in the house and be a hermit. Um, but but it, it really shrunk my life down to me. And I was pretty selfish all weekend, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I did have some stuff to do to prepare for today, which kind of got me out of myself. But it made me think about, in light of what we're looking at today, <clears throat> what does it mean to live for something bigger than just yourself? Because it's easy to live for yourself. Man, that's easy. I, seriously, I, I, I grilled some steak Friday evening and made some tater tots, because when you're a bachelor, you make tater tots, okay? You just put, throw them in the oven. I even put some cheese and bacon on top of them and baked them. I know, see, right? Some of that Pepperidge Farm garlic toast you just throw in the oven. You know, you don't have to cut it and make it and all that stuff. Real easy stuff. Ate, watched a movie Saturday. I got on treadmill, watched a movie, and um, ate again. And then I watched a movie. And uh, <laughs> as I was getting ready for this message, I thought, man, I'm pretty selfish. But what does it mean... To live for something bigger than yourself. What if my purpose this weekend was more than just myself? What if I had committed it to serving other people? What if I had committed it to praying for other people? What if I had committed it to simply being before the Lord all weekend? And I didn't do any of those things, so don't look at me and say, Wow, that guy's really holy. I did none of those things. I watched movies and ate. Okay? That's what I did this weekend. But what does it mean to live for something, or maybe someone, bigger than yourself? Um, what is the guy's name? I don't, give me a second. I'm quoting somebody, and I can't remember what his name is. I, I don't want to get... He's, he's, it's, it's the Trip guy. Is it Paul David or David Paul? Paul David Tripp. Um, he wrote a book called A Quest for More. And it talks about living for something bigger than yourself. And he says this, We live in a culture that has institutionalized self-focus and personal entitlement. If you look around, it's very clear that we need to be rescued from ourselves. Things like debt, addiction, obesity, divorce, and etc. are the fruits of a culture of self-focus where we look for meaning where meaning cannot be found. And then he says this, There's freedom to be found in living for something bigger than yourself. And he calls it transcendence. And he, I'll finish his quote this way. He says, To live for transcendence 
means that what you think, desire, say, and do is driven by something bigger than personal wants, needs, and feelings. Ultimately, it means living for the glory of God and the success of His agenda for the world He made. That's pretty good right there, y'all. I haven't read the book. I might want to now that I've found this illustration. But as we uh, finish chapter 15 of Romans today, we're going to see a picture, a snapshot of Paul. The Apostle Paul, not Paul David Tripp, but the Apostle Paul, who I think epitomizes what it means to live for something bigger than yourself, for, to live for something transcendent, which is ultimately the glory of God. So if you would, please stand and we're going to read and get through by the grace of God. Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 33. Um, some of y'all don't know, uh, we've been in Romans for two years now, so we usually don't take big chunks like this. So this is going to be a little different than what we normally see. But let me read this, and we stand because we respect the God of the Word, and we respect the Word of God. This is the reason why, I've been, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let me pray. God, we approach your word this morning with thankfulness, with reverence, and with expectation. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, teach us and instruct us so that you get glory in our lives and so that we may know what it means to live for something bigger than ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So much here. And what we're looking at today is, um, we said the last point of our outline is Paul's concluding mandates. And we're looking at some of the things that he's saying here really now as postscript to the body of the letter, which has been Romans. Um, and these are not meandering thoughts. Everything's for a purpose. Please remember what Paul is writing is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Bible is inerrant. We believe that the Bible is breathed out by God Himself. So while Paul's scribe's pen was writing these words, it was literally the very words of God that were being said. So this is not just some tack-on at the end of a letter. This is the very Word of God. So, and we'll, again, so you know, this message and three more in Romans and we'll be done. Next week we get to see a bunch of names. 
And that don't sound real exciting, but I promise you it's more exciting than you think. So today, we're going to start in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, last week, uh, those of you that weren't here, we were looking and we saw in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 15 of Romans that Paul said that he had fulfilled his ministry of proclaiming Christ where he had not been named from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum. Now let me show you what that looks like because that's a lot of, lot of land, y'all. And again, they traveled by foot, by donkey and horse, and by boat. And so he says from Jerusalem down here all the way up to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, Paul says he's fulfilled the ministry that God had given him to do. Now that's a pretty big statement, but he says it pretty ironclad. Okay? And he says that ministry, doing that, is the reason why he has been so often hindered from coming to the Roman church. Now, what he's saying is basically, I would have liked to have come, but I couldn't. I was hindered. And that word hindered means basically to dig a ditch, to dig a trench. And it's like if enemies were coming to a walled city, they would dig this big deep trench to keep the enemies from getting over. And Paul's saying, I wanted to come before, but I couldn't because I was cut off and I had to go the direction that God sent me. So you see already these little tastes, this little hint of Paul living for something bigger than himself. Because he's saying, I wanted to come, but I couldn't. I was hindered. There was a trench in front of me dug by God Himself that wouldn't let me come to you. I had other things to do. He was too busy pursuing what we called last week a holy ambition. The calling of God, doing the will of God. He was too busy doing that to simply do what he wanted to do. And I think it's right to note that the hindering here was not devilish in its origins. Oh, devil kept him away from Rome. Nope. It was God Himself and Paul Himself working in conjunction saying, I want to go to Rome, but I know that that's not what I'm supposed to do right now. Now listen, I want to say something real quick here, and I mentioned it last week. It's not real hard to discern the will of God. You're like, oh, really? Yeah, really. It's not a pinpoint on a map somewhere that you hope you might hit it. If you do everything right, cross all your T's, dot all your I's, comb your hair right, I'm in the will of God. That's not the will of God. Discerning the will of God is as simple as opening the Scriptures and seeing what God says about Himself and what God calls you to do in the roles that you're in right now. Amen. That's good news, y'all. You don't have to worry about, oh, I've missed the will of God back when I was 16 and made stupid decisions. Anybody make stupid decisions when you were 16? Can I get an amen? <clears throat> How about 14? Let's go back to 14, okay? Eighth grade. Remember eighth grade? Oh, Lord. You know, what, what happened if I missed the will of God back there? Because I did. I promise I did. 30. Yeah, 30. Yeah, 43. Okay, here we are. But oh, I lived in fear of missing the will of God. And the will of God is a wide open field surrounded by the fence of Scripture. And if you're inside the fence, you're in the will of God. And Paul knew that. And he knew as he traveled around which way he should go, what he should do. Now, he was an inspired apostle as well. 
So he had a, maybe a little bit more specific purpose than you, maybe. But God, knowing God's will is not that hard. And if you have a holy passion to do what God's called you to do like Paul did, I promise God will keep you in His will. So knowing and doing God's will should be priority one in the believer's life. And that means we should know what God's will is and then do that. Now, again, most of the time, it's, it's not going to be an angelic vision or a Damascus Road experience. But again, look around. Be a husband. Be a wife. Be a mother. Be a father. Be a son. Be a daughter. Be an employee. And do everything you do to the glory of God. Know God's will and do it. And allow God to correct us if, if He so desires. And He will. I promise He will. And the key here is don't let something that you want, as good as it may be, interfere with doing God's will. That's what he's saying here. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, and the reason was I was doing God's will. Okay? Verse 23. Actually, we're going to read 23 and 24 together. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now there's a lot to see in these two verses. First, we've got to note the structure of what Paul is saying here. We need to pay attention to that structure so that we can see Paul's true desire. Let me tell you something he said back in Romans 1. Romans 1, 9 through 15. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. We've heard this before, right? But thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So that was back in chapter 1. Here in Romans 1, Paul's desire to get to them is so that he can strengthen them and be encouraged by them by preaching the gospel among them. Now, let's go back to 15, 23 through 24. Keep in mind what we just saw. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now the structure that I want us to see here in what he's saying is since and since I hope. Okay, But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Since and since I hope. Since what and since what? And what is his hope? Since he doesn't have any room to work in this humongous region anymore. And again, look at that. He says, I've got no room to work here anymore. Since he has no room in that region anymore... And since he has longed for many years to come to the church in Rome, he hopes what? He hopes to see them 
Yes, but that's the means, not the end. What's his hope? His hope is to go somewhere else where Christ has never been named. Where was he wanting to go? Spain. Look at it again in verse 24. Looking for his hope. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He hopes to see them in passing as he goes to Spain and to be helped on his journey to Spain by them once he has enjoyed their company for a while. So what does he hope? Does he hope to get to Rome? Yes, but not as an end. He hopes to get to Rome as a means to an end to get to Spain. So, <laughs> what if I sent you a letter? I hope to see you, hope to make it to Crab Orchard there so that I can go on to Mullins and get a hot dog at the Black Eagle Dairy Queen. It's better than Hinton, by the way. Tuck it away. Trust me. Sorry, I don't know where that came from. That's not in the notes. Um, his hope is to get to Spain. Why? Because his holy ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named before. Now, you probably know where Spain is, but let me show you. Okay? Spain's over there, the, 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 left, or the left peninsula there. So he's saying, I want to get to Rome so that I can get to Spain. Okay? Rome has a church established. And that's not Paul's mission. The mission is still the mission. The goal is still the goal. He still wants to preach Christ where Christ has not been named. And here he's talking about Spain. Rome has a church and this letter is written so that that church might help Paul in his effort to get to Spain. Paul's work at this point is centered on establishing new churches, not laboring with established ones. Now he does labor with established ones on his missionary journeys, but that's never the goal. The longest he stayed in any place was in Corinth where he was 18 months or so. Okay? And then he moved on. He had other things to do. And he is focused on that goal still even after having accomplished that work in one corner of the globe. So what does he do? So he writes this letter. Now listen, he writes this letter. He writes the book of Romans to lay out his doctrine in hopes that they will approve of it and support him on his journey. Now there's a word of wisdom here for prospective missionaries. You want somebody to support you? You want to raise support? Give people doctrine. Tell them what your doctrine is. Tell them what you're going to be preaching and proclaiming. Good, sound, 16 chapters, voluminous doctrine. And trust that to be enough to garner the support that you need. We peddle not ourselves but we share the Word of God. So you want to go overseas and you want to reach people, share doctrine with people. Share doctrine with churches and individuals to try to raise your support. Because that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He wrote this letter to raise support to get to Spain. Okay? Next verse, verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Whoops, now what? Paul finally gets to go and meet the Romans, which is something he's wanted to do for years. His work in this region is done and he can now do what he wanted to do all these many years now. Now most believe that he's writing this letter from Corinth 
in about 57 A.D. on his third missionary journey. Now, I don't know if you'd be able to see this or not, but Corinth, you see Achaia over here? That one little dot on Achaia is Corinth. Okay, So here's Paul. Now keep in mind where that's at because when we look at this, okay, now we're looking over toward the right a little bit to see where Achaia is. And if you look just to the left of the peninsula where Achaia is, you see Italy, the boot, right? Rome's in Italy. Okay? So, he could go from Achaia, maybe go up, land a little bit, sail over a little bit, and then go up, land a little more. He'd be in Rome. Bam. Okay? But instead, he says he's going to Jerusalem. Hello? That's way over here, down here. From Achaia, he could have went left of Rome, but he goes, who knows? Well, actually we do know because the Scripture tells us the path that he takes back to Jerusalem. I want to go to Rome. Yeah, I can finally go to Rome, so I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Now what? That's like me saying I want to go to Boston and then take a detour to Denver. Makes sense, doesn't it? No, no, it doesn't make sense. Paul was so ready, he was so excited to go to Rome, and he's close to Rome, so now he takes a thousand-mile detour back to Jerusalem on a boat and on foot. Why? Why are you taking a thousand-mile detour to Jerusalem? He says to bring aid to the saints. Now what's that all about? If you look at Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, chapters 13 to 20, which we're not going to read all that, you're welcome, you see Paul going all over and through that area of Jerusalem around to Illyricum, and that's what this map was showing. This is his third missionary journey. Okay, that's what it looked like. He visits mostly metropolitan areas, big influential cities. He works in these places and establishes churches and looks for maximum impact. And in the beginning of his working, he had met with all the apostles in Jerusalem to make sure they were all on the same page, especially regarding whether Gentile believers would have to keep the Mosaic law or not. We've talked about the Judaizers a lot as we went through the book of Romans. And what would happen is Paul would come in and preach the gospel to Gentiles, not saying at all you've got to keep the law, but saying you're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. The Judaizers would come in behind him in these cities and say, Paul's not wrong, but you've also got to keep the law. But Paul had already established with the apostles back in Jerusalem, you don't have to keep the Mosaic law. We just ask you to do a few simple things. And one of the simple things that they ask him to do is found in Galatians 2, 7 through 10. This is Paul telling the story of him meeting with the apostles. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James... And Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. And here you go. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It must be awfully important if they say, one thing we ask while you're going around reaching the Gentiles, we ask you to remember the poor. So, back here in Romans 15, 25, 
Paul says, at the present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So they had agreed to work in the ministry of God with what he had entrusted to them, and they all agreed, himself and the Jewish apostles, which Paul was Jewish too, but he was the apostle to the Gentiles. They had agreed to make sure they always remember the poor. So listen to me. We're talking about sending money to Houston next week. Houston, Louisiana, Texas, Louisiana. Listen to me. Benevolence, giving, sharing was always, has always been an important part of the ministry of the church. You want to live for something bigger than yourself? Help those who are hurting. Give to the poor. Give to the needy. That's a good way. We'll talk about that later in our application. Benevolence has always been an important part of the ministry of the church. So, here in 1525, Paul is delivering money to the saints back in Jerusalem. He'd been collecting this money during his third missionary journey, which you can read in Acts 19, 20, and 21, the chapters 19 through 21. And why is he doing this? Why are they in need? There had been a famine, which was mentioned as being foretold in Acts eleven twenty eight. 28. said there was going to be a famine, there was a famine. So, eight chapters later in Acts, along with that, it was obvious that followers of Jesus were being ostracized and losing their place in society, especially Jewish people, being relegated to poverty and even persecution. So because of the famine, because of ostracization, and because of persecution, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were experiencing incredibly hard times. So as Paul traveled around, he said, we're taking up money for the saints in Jerusalem. I'd like for you to give some money toward that to these Gentile believers. And Paul was bringing it to them from the places he he had been. Now where did it come from? Look at verse 26. Oops, skip the minutes here. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, Macedonia and Achaia would include Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Athens at least. There were probably more cities. And Paul had given them instruction on this collection when he talked to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, y'all. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So he's saying every week when you meet on the Lord's Day as the church, why do we meet on Sunday as the church? Because it's biblical. Okay? He's saying every week when you meet... Take up this collection every week, and when I come, I'll grab that and I'll take it back with me to Jerusalem. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now quick, everywhere Paul went and picked up money, he picked up people too. And he took them with him. That's pretty neat. We'll talk about that too at the end. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Well, here in Romans, we know that he is going. Oh, sorry. So he says, here's the directions. When you meet on the Lord's Day, take up a collection, get it all together, get me some people who can go with me, and we'll take it back to Jerusalem as I pass through. So that's what's going on here. Okay. So, 
Paul said it pleased them to make this contribution. Not only pleased them, but look at verse 27. For they were pleased to do it. The churches in Achaia and Macedonia. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now swallow that real hard for a second. He says they were pleased to provide help. Repeats that actually because he said it earlier. But he also says, and indeed they owe it to them. Who owes what to who here? The Gentile believers owed this support to the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. Now what? Now y'all know me, this whole owe thing doesn't sit real well with me. Okay, Who do we owe what? Last week, Jason, sorry, we're singing Jesus paid it all. And everybody's singing all to Him I owe. Not me. I didn't sing that. I don't think that's right. Jesus paid it all. All for me, I know, is what I sing. So, y'all, I wasn't just crazy. I was doing that on purpose. Who do we owe what? Well, we don't owe God anything because everything He gives us is grace. And if we owe Him for it, it's not grace. I can't pay Him anything. If I give Him a cent, it's not grace anymore. But, but who owes who what here? The Gentile believers owe the Jewish believers help and support and money. Why would these Gentile churches owe these mostly Jewish believers support and help? For, he says, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, in other words, the covenant promises given to Abraham, the father of the Jews, the least that they can do is help with material physical blessings. Paul would also say this about himself and the need he has for financial help when he wrote to the Corinthians also. Let me read this passage. It's a little lengthy, but stay with me. You've got to get the whole thing to get the picture here. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? And let me set the table for this for a second. The Corinthians were saying, well, Paul's just after money. Paul just wants money. So he's saying, should I receive money as a preacher of the gospel? This is my defense. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you... Now this is what we're talking about in Romans. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Last verse. In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, why do I read that? Because he's telling the Roman church that the Achaeans and the Macedonians owed this to the Jews in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had received spiritual blessings from the root, which is the Jewish people. Remember back in Romans 9, 10, and 11? 
We talked about roots and branches and being grafted in. Where did the branches get their nourishment? From the root. So the spiritual blessings, Jesus said, Jesus said, salvation comes from the Jews, is of the Jews. So Paul's saying back here in Romans, if you received, if they received, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, if they received spiritual blessing from the Jews, and they did, they owe material blessings back to them, at least. That's the very least that they could do. Interestingly enough, Paul tells the Corinthian church that he forgoes that right so he can preach the gospel for free. But nonetheless, the principle is clear. Those given spiritual blessing should at least provide material blessing with those who have given that said spiritual blessing. That's the scriptural principle that is clear. You're blessed spiritually, you bless materially. Just makes sense. So the Gentile churches owed this support to the Jewish believers. So it not only pleased them, but they owed it to them. Verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul says when he's delivered this financial gift from what he has collected on his journey, then he will come to the Roman church and leave from them to go to Spain. Now it seems pretty forward. I mean, he's just saying, this is what I'm going to do. But you see the ground he laid with the financial support with the financial support part as he plans to gain the support of the Romans. See what he did there? He kind of backdoored them. So if they receive spiritual blessings, they should bless with material blessings. Paul sends them this letter, this letter, y'all, and he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to labor among you, so I expect you to bless me financially. And I'm going to Spain as a result of what you give me. So he kind of backdoored them there. It's kind of pretty intelligent, really. So if you're blessed spiritually, you should bless financially. I'm going to come, y'all going to bless me financially, and I'm going to go to Spain. That's what he's saying here. Seems a little forward, but he's, he's laid that ground through this letter and then the time that he hopes to spend with them. 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's looking forward to seeing them, being with them, and he says that when he does come, which is quite a statement too, I'm coming, I'm going to be there. He says that when he does come, that he will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now why does he say that? How could he know for sure? Because he made it his goal to please the Lord, and in so doing... In so pleasing the Lord, he knew the blessing of Christ on his life. And as he sought to continue to please the Lord, he would continue to know that blessing. He was sure of it. Now we ask, oh, I I hope God will bless me. I hope God will bless me. Listen to me. Live for something bigger than yourself. Live for the will of God and you will know the blessing of Christ. You will be assured of having the blessing of Christ just like Paul was. Not just the blessing, but the fullness of the blessing of Christ. If my goal, my aim, my purpose is to fulfill the will of God, I will know that wherever I go, I'm going in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I think that's pretty powerful. He was sure of it. Now, we move to the last four verses here. Verse 30 and 31. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So now Paul appeals to them as brothers and he does so by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. His appeal is by God's Son and by God's Spirit to them. He appeals to what unites us as believers, our Lord, and the love of the Spirit who is our help. Now just a quick aside, that phrase, by the love of the Spirit. I think he's saying, I don't think he's saying he's loved by the Spirit. I think he's saying he loves the Spirit. I appeal to you by the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit. Let me ask you a quick question here. All us upright, proper Decency and order people, which is good. Do you love the Spirit of God? Do you love God's Spirit? Do you love the Holy Spirit? Paul did. And I think we should too. But Paul appeals to the Romans by Christ and the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now back at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul prayed for them. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So at the beginning he's praying for them, and now at the end of the letter he's asking them to pray for Him. There's sort of a mutual benefit there, isn't there? There's kind of a partnership there, isn't there? What does he ask them to pray? He asks them to pray that he might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that his service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul knew that as he traveled back to Jerusalem that it would be dangerous. There were prophetic warnings all along the way on his way back to Jerusalem telling him, if you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. If you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be persecuted. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only willing to go to Jerusalem, I'm ready to die there if so need be. So he knew that there was persecution coming when he went back to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm asking you to pray for me that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Is that Paul being afraid? No. That's Paul asking God to work on his behalf as His people intercede and say, God, please save Paul's life. Nothing wrong with asking God to preserve your life. That's right, it's good. Paul knew that on the way back to Jerusalem, he would see danger. He knew that when he got to Jerusalem, it would be dangerous because he had basically, in the eyes of the unbelieving Jews, the Jews who were still trying to earn their own salvation through the works of the law, he knew that he had betrayed them in their sight, when he was converted to what they called the way. And as one with high standing in his Pharisaism, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said, he knew that he would be a target for Jews who were against the work of this new thing that God was doing. So he asks the Romans to pray that he would be safe from their plans for him. And he asked them to pray that the saints in Jerusalem would accept his service to them. Now that seems weird, right? He's bringing a big sack of cash. And he's saying, I pray that this is acceptable to them. Why would he pray that? Why would he have them to pray that? 
Because the Jews could say, we don't want Gentile money. Even believing Jews could say that. Again, Gentiles were dogs. And it's a hard, hard habit to break when you've walked in it for so long to think that certain people are unacceptable. Careful with your prejudice, church. So he prays. It takes God's doing to break prejudice. So he prays that the offering that he brings would be acceptable to them. He asked them to pray that. They might scoff at it. They might reject it. So he says, please, don't let there be pride in the way. Don't let them say they don't need help. Can you imagine these folks in Houston saying, I don't need any help. Keep your money. I don't think so. But it could happen. Certain people may say, hey, this money came from a church. Well, I don't want it then. Okay? Somebody will tell you. So Paul asked that the Romans pray that that don't happen. Verse 32. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And Paul asked that they pray that it would be God's will that He would make it to them. Now, here's a little bit more dependence than just saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, and when I come, I'm going to do this. He asked that it would be God's will that He would make it to them. And that that coming would be with joy and that He would be refreshed in their company. Is it refreshing to be here on Sunday mornings? I hope so. There's refreshing for the people of God in the midst of the people of God. Sounds about right. I'd want you to pray this for me as well. And I'll pray it for you. Last verse, 1533. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And now Paul prays for them that... What? That the God of peace would be with them all. Now having the peace of God's one thing, and it's a very good thing, but what about having the God of peace with you? It's even better, isn't it? Let me just, if you scan through Romans 15, Paul calls God the God of endurance and encouragement in verse 5. He calls Him the God of hope in verse 13. And He calls Him the God of peace in verse 33, right here in front of us. The God of endurance and encouragement, the God of hope, the God of peace, and He prays that that God would be with them. That's a pretty good picture of what God is, who He is, and what He can and should mean to us. So we say with Paul, Amen, so be it. So, we made it through all the verses, y'all. Now we've got application. Back at the beginning of the message, we talked about transcendence. Living for something bigger, better than just yourself. Living for something more than movies and eating when you're alone on the weekend. Now... We can apply this passage. I see a lot of things, but we're going, to, we're going to stop with four. Four things we're going to focus on. Four things that we as believers can do and should do in order to live for something bigger than ourselves that we see modeled in this passage through Paul. Four P's, okay? It always, it's always P's. I don't understand. I hate P's. This provision, right? Four P's. The four P's are planning, poor, partnering, and praying. Planning, poor, partnering, praying. If we're going to live for something bigger than ourselves, if we're going to be absorbed in the mission of God and what He's doing in the world, we see these four things modeled in this passage. The first is planning. 
Paul speaks of his plans to go to Jerusalem. Paul speaks of his plans to come to Rome. Paul speaks of his plans to go to Spain. Now, is it right to make plans like that? You bet it is. There are those who say you shouldn't plan anything. But just trust God and follow the Spirit, air quotes. Emphasis on air quotes. Just follow the Spirit. You don't need to make any plans. (laughs) As if looking ahead and making plans is unspiritual. And this passage really serves to debunk that. I mean, just shoots it out of the water. Now, I would surely say we have to be willing to let God change our plans. But that does not mean we should not have plans. What if we didn't plan to take up money next week? What if they didn't plan to take up money on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, knowing that Paul was coming? It's right to plan. Okay? So if I'm going to live for something bigger than myself, i got to have a plan. What are you going to do to live for something bigger than yourself, than to live for someone bigger than yourself. you got to have a plan, not just hope it happens. Now, Proverbs 16.9 is clear. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's not saying don't plan. It's just saying make a plan and God will direct your path. And He may change your plan some. I'm excited we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah at least when we finish Romans. And the vision never changes. But the plans change sometime to achieve that vision. I want you to keep that in mind. It's right to plan, but it's also right to hold that plan loosely in your hand because God can change it at any point when you're walking in His will. So planning is the first thing that we see. It's right to plan. And it's right to trust God with your plans and let God change your plans when God wants to. And He'll let you know. I promise He will. So planning. If I'm going to live for something bigger than myself, planning is important. Paul had big plans, giant plans, and he lived them out. The second thing is the poor. If I'm going to live for something bigger than myself, I have to, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, focus my attention, focus my affection, and focus my provision on helping the poor. Our faith is one that is not just casually concerned about the poor. It is a vital tenet of our faith to care for the poor. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We have to. I have to. You have to. We have to. Be those who help the helpless and give to the poor. You say, well, I don't really know what that looks like. There are all kinds of opportunities. Take your extra clothes down to Goodwill. Take your uh, extra money and give it in the offering out here so that the deacons can decide how to best help the poor among us. There was a hurricane, in case y'all hadn't heard. Send some money to help those people. There are brothers and sisters we have all over the world who are languishing in poverty. Find ways to get them some support, some money. Support missionaries. That's helping the poor as well. Trust me, you've got less money 
than the need is. But you can share that money. We have to, have to, have to help the helpless and give to the poor and the afflicted. So that's part of why we're taking up a collection next week to help the people in Texas and Louisiana because it's what we do as the church. We as followers of Jesus should outdo and outshine the rest of the world in our sacrificial giving. When people think about those that help, those that give the most, they should think of Christians. They should think of followers of Jesus. And one key thing to remember is that we should give to all, but we should focus on the needs of the saints. 6.10 Galatians. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, let me just tell you straightforward... The money that you give next week for Harvey is probably, probably going to be filtered through the Southern Baptist Convention to reach churches and people down there who are helping churches and people down there. It's the beauty of cooperation, by the way. So we can know that a lot of what we're doing is helping our fellow brothers and sisters down there who are affected. And we can empower them, we can equip them to do the ministry that God's called them to do down there. So give to everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we had planning and the poor. Third one is partnering. And this P is not pulled directly from the text, but it's all over it. Did I just say P's all over it? <laughs> We're going to need to uh, edit that out of the message. <laughs> yeah. Paul is seeking to be a partner to those in Jerusalem. He's seeking to partner with the church in Rome so that he can get to Spain and partner with the people there. Paul was always surrounded by fellow believers in his quest to reach the lost. Again, he said, find some people, send them with me to take the money to the people that I'm partnering with in Jerusalem. If you look near the end of the book of Acts, it gives a list of the people who are traveling with Paul. And he started out on that last... um, journey with just Silas, Paul and Silas, right? And man, by the end of Acts, he has got a cohort around him. And they're from everywhere. Paul was always surrounded by partners, fellow believers in his quest to reach the lost. And listen, this is a clear call to be the church with the church. Not just inside these walls... Again, why do we appeal to partnership? Why do we appeal to cooperation with other churches? Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. That's what this passage tells us to do. To partner with the church, to be the church. Listen to me. We are no good on our own, individually or as a church. I know I've said this over and over and over in a hundred application points, but the examples are just voluminous. I can't help but say it again. Christians are made to be partnering people. We need each other in a local body to fulfill the ministry God has given us individually and corporately. And not only that, we need to partner with other churches to expand our reach and our impact. We have to work collectively with other groups so that we can aid them and receive aid from them. Paul served as a string 
to bring together churches all over His ministry area for a common purpose. It not only pleased them, but they owed it to them. Why did they know that they owed it to them? Because Paul told them, you should partner with these people in Jerusalem that you've never set eyes on, that you'll never meet, because they're your brothers and your sisters. So Paul, like a string going through Achaia and Macedonia and Asia Minor and Illyricum, and then he just pulls it all together when he comes back to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Rome and says, I need some money so that I can go to Spain and pull them into all this too. We have to work collectively for a common purpose. Something bigger than ourselves. If Paul hadn't done this, the churches in Asia Minor would have had no concern for the saints in Jerusalem. And the church in Rome would not care about the lost in Spain. God's clear plan is for the universal church to partner with one another, for one another, to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, we're not going to accomplish that vision statement, that mission statement, unless we partner with other churches. We cannot fulfill the mission of the church as Lone Rangers, individually or just simply as a church. Partnership is the clear Biblical directive. Planning, the poor, partnering, and finally, number four, praying. Praying. Finally, we have to pray. If we are going to live for something bigger than ourselves and be a part of a bigger vision than what we have for movies and eating all weekend, we've got to pray. We have to pray. Individually and corporately, we have to pray. Now it may sound, sound elementary to say that, but let me ask you, are you doing it? Are you praying? And if so, are we doing it more than to ask God to bless our meals and to keep us safe and healthy? That's focusing on ourselves. And we're talking about living for something bigger than ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to bless your food. There's nothing wrong with asking God to keep you safe and healthy. Nothing wrong with it, but it's not enough if you're going to live for something bigger than yourself. The question we need to ask here is, individually and corporately, am I engaged in prayer for the fulfilling of the mission of God in my life and in the world at large? Because that's the bigger purpose that you're supposed to be living for. Am I engaged in prayer for the fulfilling of the mission of God in my life and in the world at large? I confess before you all, looking you in the face and the eyes, I fail miserably at the discipline of prayer in my life. I'm not happy about it, but I continue to labor and confess, God, I'm not praying. I'm not engaged in that secret, in-my-closet type of prayer where it's just me and God wrestling with the world at large. I pray some, but I would not consider myself a man of prayer, given to prayer for the sake of God's purposes in the world. So I heed this application point this warning myself. But as we close, one warning about this praying stuff. Watch for God's answer and be prepared to see Him when we don't think He is hearing or answering our prayers. 
What was Paul's prayer request for himself in Romans 15? You remember we just saw it in verses 30 to 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will... I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So he asked them to pray that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that his offering would be acceptable to those in Jerusalem, and that he would come to the Romans with joy and be refreshed in their company so he could get to Spain with their help. Now are you ready to pray and then watch God answer that prayer any way He wants to? Well, let me ask you this. Looking at this and we'll close. Did Paul's prayer get answered? Did these three prayers get answered? Did he make it to Spain? Most indicators say he did not. There's nothing recorded in Scripture that says he made it to Spain. Why? Because he went to Jerusalem and he presented the offering he collected and he got arrested. You can read the story in Acts chapters 21 through 24. He was arrested because the unbelieving Jews who he asked to be delivered from stirred up a mob and said he was a troublemaker. And then he was in jail in Jerusalem for two years. I don't know about you all, but two years seems like a really long time to be in jail if God's answering my prayers. Going to jail seems pretty weird if God's answering my prayers. Because he didn't do anything wrong. And then being in jail for two years people all over the world praying for Him that He would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and He ends up in jail for two years. Did God answer His prayers? Did He make it to Rome? Yeah. He made it to Rome, but He made it to Rome as a prisoner who had appealed to Caesar to hear His case. He arrived in Rome in chains as a prisoner not as a fundraising missionary. So my question is, were his prayers answered or not? The answer is yes, they were. The Jews tried to have Paul killed, but he was kept safe and he actually had an entire Roman cohort to accompany him. And on the way to Rome two years later, after being in jail, there was a shipwreck on his journey But he was delivered through that as well. And then he washes up on Malta on a piece of wreckage and he's getting some fire ready and a snake jumps out of the fire and latches onto his hands and they're watching and waiting for him to swell up and die. But he doesn't. So he gets through a shipwreck. He gets through the Jews trying to kill him. He gets through a shipwreck. He gets through a snake biting him, which should have killed him. And he lived. And then the book of Acts ends this way. We're looking at whether God answered his prayers or not. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. This is in Rome, by the way. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. The Jews wanted him killed. But because the Jews objected, I I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Now he's saying this in Rome to the Jews who were there. 
And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. He's talking about being Christians, by the way. That's what the Jews are saying in Rome. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, skip a little bit and we go to verse, verses 30 and 31 of the same chapter. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense as a prisoner and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So did God answer his prayers? Yeah. The answer to the Spain prayer was no. The answer to will you deliver me from... The unbelievers in Judea was, yeah, but it's going to look a little different than you think it might. And his prayer to make it to Rome safely and in the will of God was answered with a resounding, okay. Now, is that how you would choose to answer those prayers? Not me, thank you very much. I don't want a snake on my hand, chain on my wrists and ankles. So his prayers were answered, but man, it was in a roundabout way, wasn't it? And listen to me, as we seek to be a praying people, praying for God's will to be done, something bigger than ourselves, we have to be prepared for that. We have to be prepared for God to say no. And we have to be prepared for trials, tribulations, persecutions, because Jesus said they're coming, Paul said they're coming, the Spirit said they're coming. And we have to be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. Paul probably never made it to Spain, but while he was imprisoned in Rome, he also wrote some letters. You may have heard of them. New Testament books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. 2 Timothy was also written from prison, but it's unclear if it was this imprisonment or a later one for Paul. Point is, God has His purpose. And as we pray, we look for that in how He answers our prayers. So we make plans, we help the poor, we partner with others in the church, and we pray. And we say, God, help me to live for something bigger than myself. Help me to get my eyes off of just my plans so that I can see your greater purpose, so that I can suffer persecution if necessary, and so that your will will be done, your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Have your way, O Lord. And that's what it means to live for something bigger than yourself. And by the grace of God, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I can do that. You can do that. We can do that. And there is tremendous joy. If you read the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote from this prison, rejoice. And again I will say rejoice. Rejoice in prison. He says, I have learned the secret. Whether I'm abounding or have nothing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And listen, in the presence of Him, in the presence of the Lord, is fullness of joy. 
as we suffer, as we abound, as we hope, as we plan, as we pray, as we help the poor, as we partner with others, there is the greatest joy you have ever experienced in your life. And that's what we live for. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we could think or imagine. And God, we submit ourselves to you. We will make plans and we'll submit those plans to you. God, we will be those individually and corporately who help the poor. God, we will be those, by your grace, who partner with others in your body. And we will be those, God, who pray. By your grace and for your glory, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a doxology? A benediction. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ and all God's people said... Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.